And as the summer unfolded, it became evident that's not just smoke and not just Canada. This has been the summer from climate hell all across the earth. Temperatures are rising at the rate we thought they would, but the effects are more severe, more frequent, more critical. It's crazy and it's getting crazier. Welcome back to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack. Today we're beginning a new series by considering the multiple uncertainties of life on our planet. We begin by looking at the ever-warming planet to examine some of the damaging repercussions of climate change. Wildfire escalations, crop impacts, human health effects, property loss, disease, and of course, death. I regret making such a doleful list, but facts are facts. Our inability to make governments mandate fossil fuel producers to meet emission targets has failed us miserably. So we are now marooned, trying to deal with the looming consequences with little or no guidance, but a deep sense of dread. Well, to look at the scale and the implications of a hot planet, we have two guest speakers, Jeff Goodall, is a best-selling New York Times author and contributing editor at Rolling Stone, where he's been covering climate change for over two decades. He's authored several books, and the latest is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. We also welcome Mike Flanagan, who's the scientific director of the Canadian Partnership for Wildland Fire Science. Welcome to you both. Great to be here. Happy to be here. Okay, Jeff. You've written this wonderfully comprehensive book on the topic of heat. You say the goal of the book is to convince people to think about heat in a different way, that it's widely misunderstood. What do you mean by that? So, you know, as you mentioned, I've been covering climate change for a couple of decades now. But about five years ago, um, I happened to be in Phoenix on a hot day. It was 115 degrees. I had to walk about 15 blocks downtown uh, to a meeting. And by the time I got to the meeting, 15 blocks away, I was dizzy and my heart was pounding. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is this heat is brutal and it has powerful impact on me. And I don't know what would happen to me if I had to walk another 15 blocks in this in this kind of extreme heat. And that sounds really simple, but the fact is I had been covering climate change for 15 years and talked about warming and ice sheets melting and all of the other impacts of a warming planet, but I had never thought about it as an active force, as something that can kill you quickly if you're stuck in it in the wrong circumstances or if you don't understand the risks. And I realized that if I didn't understand the risks of heat and how dangerous it was to me and to my life, that I bet a lot of other people didn't either. And so I really started to think about this a little bit. And I realized that most people really don't think about heat as this sort of active force that has real human health risks, as well as risks to all other kind of living creatures also. And moreover, when I thought about it a little bit, I realized that I didn't even know what heat was. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit this, but I knew what temperature was. But if you would have asked me to explain what is heat, I would not have had a good answer. So that was sort of the genesis of the book. 
It's interesting. You have a lot of examples in the book of how heat is being played out in various parts of the world, uh, especially amongst the poorest. But um, one of the starkest examples, I think, probably here that we um, were all exposed to was that story in California. I think it was last autumn with the young couple and their baby, the, the Garish family. And they died uh, hiking in just a few hours. And it took obviously took them totally by surprise. But it even took the people investigating their deaths by surprise. They looked everywhere else. And then finally they said, this was heat stroke. So can you highlight and just tell us a little about the two different kinds of heat stroke? Uh, so the different kinds of you know heat, there's two basically different kinds of heat stroke. And one is the kind of kind of passive heat stroke that you know, is most familiar to people like with children who are stuck in hot cars, right? The temperature just, you're in an environment where the temperature just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And, you know, you, your body cannot compensate for that rising heat by sweating. Sweating is the one mechanisms our bodies have to dissipate heat and it works fine to a certain level. But if you're in, you know, a hot car or if you're locked in a hot sauna or if you're stuck in the desert on a hot day, your body cannot dissipate that kind of heat. Your internal body temperature rises, um, causes all kinds of problems, including heart stress, which a lot of people end up dying from before the, the more complicated consequences, such as cellular melting and things like that, that happens in your bodies at higher temperatures. That's one thing. The other is exertional heat stroke, which can happen. What happened to that family when they're hiking? As you are moving, your body is generating heat. That's what, you know, as you use your muscles, that generates heat. So I think most people understand this intuitively. If you're out on a hot day and you're sitting down or if you're sitting in the shade, it's very different than if you're up on the roof and you're pounding nails or if you're carrying a backpack or if you're working in a field as a laborer, there's exertional heat stroke. So that is a completely different kind of danger and risk. It still causes the same problem, which is an uncontrollable rise of body heat, but it can happen much faster. And in, one thing I just want to stress is that in those kinds of situations, water is important, but will not save you. In other words, a lot of wildfire fighters can be out working, fighting a, a wildfire. There's been a lot of studies on this, and can have heat stroke, even though they have plenty of water, simply because they're working so hard wearing heavy equipment that they can't dissipate the heat. So water is really important in you know keeping our body hydrated so that we can sweat and all that, but water itself does not save you. So you also list a lot of other kinds of havoc in the world that are being played out, some of which we're unaware of. Um, you take us on a trajectory that goes into the kind of minutiae we look at the impact on plants and animals and fish and insects. And, and so this is going to cause subsequent migrations, both of insect populations, animal populations, and, and humans. Could you just fill us in on some of the details that you unearthed when you were researching the book? You know, we as humans and all living things have evolved in this certain kind of Goldilocks zone, which we are comfortable in and we can manage and our bodies thrive in. And that is true, not just for humans, but it's true for plants, it's true for insects, it's true for all living things. In fact, it's true for many non-living things like your iPhone and things like that also. But for living things, staying in this Goldilocks zone is really important. So when it gets too hot, things move. 
uh, frogs jump higher, uh, climb higher on a mountain to seek higher elevation for cooler altitudes. You know, humans move to cooler places. Fish migrate to cooler waters. Everything has to find a this this Goldilocks zone. And if it can't, it dies. This is why coral reefs are in so much trouble uh, because of the warming ocean. And a lot of the, there's a lot of complexity to all this, but you know the two things I'll highlight. One is food crops. You know I spent a lot of time reporting in Texas. Um, a lot of crops there are at their thermal limits. You know if it gets it, it, with these extreme heat waves, corn begins to fail, wheat begins to fail. They can't handle the heat. Uh, and similarly. As we get hotter areas, we have things like mosquitoes, which are very mobile and are highly sensitive to heat, beginning to move into new areas. And these mosquitoes carry things with them like dengue, like uh, Zika, to uh, diseases that are very dangerous to humans. And we're, we've even seen in the last couple of months a resurgence of malaria in the southern United States in a couple of places. All of this is a result of mosquitoes moving to their new Goldilocks zones. So when we think about heat, it's about this rearranging of life on, on this planet that has all kinds of obvious and not so obvious consequences. Well, um, Mike, Professor Mike Flanagan up there in British Columbia, let's, let's move over to you now. So you were featured in a New York Times piece that I saw last month. Um, coming from a chap called Serge Schmemann in Quebec. Um, is it possible, do you have the chance to read yes. the beginning of the piece? Sure. Us? Yeah. And as the summer unfolded, it became evident that's not just smoke and not just Canada. This has been a summer from climate hell all across the earth. When it ceased being possible to escape or deny what we have done to our planet and ourselves, says Professor Michael Flanagan of Thompson University University in Kamloops, British Columbia, who has been studying the interaction of fire and climate for over 35 years. Temperatures are rising at the rate we thought they would, but the effects are more severe, more frequent, more critical. It's crazy and it's getting crazier. So Mike, you're a fire specialist and you live only six miles from, from fires that are still burning in Kamloops, British Columbia. Yep. So how has your own life been affected, apart from the fact that the university students, I imagine, have been impacted by these fires? And what's so different about this year? Well, first I'll talk about, you know, smoke, okay? It is a pain in the butt. And, you know, after a while, if you're not careful, the air quality in your house can be as bad or worse than outdoors. We have four air purifiers in our house to deal with the smoke. I'm a fire guy. I'm tired of this smoke, just like people are tired of the heat. And the thing about smoke is you can be in New York City, likelihood of your place burning down from wildland fire is essentially zero. But your quality of life can be in the tank because of smoke from a fire a thousand miles away. And that's an indirect impact and it's significant. Approximately 340,000 people every year die prematurely due to wildland fire smoke and it's only going to get worse. So what's going on? Um, 2023 is a record-breaking year. It's uncharted territory. It's crazy. What's going on here, okay? There's a simple recipe for wildfire. It has three ingredients. 
And this applies to Canada, the United States, the Amazon. First, you need vegetation. Fire people call it fuel. How much, what type, how dry? You need ignition, people and lightning. Third, hot, dry, windy weather. And you get all three and you have a fire. So what's happened this year is that we had extreme fire weather all across the country. And this is very unusual. Usually it's in the West or in the East or Central, but it was the entire country was on fire. And not just for a day or two, it started in the West with record-breaking heat. And I'll talk, Jeff, about heat and fire because there's a strong connection here and thus climate change. So you saw this extreme fire weather persist over large parts of the country. And that's why we're seeing this record-breaking year. Right now we burned the area equivalent of the state of Georgia. And it, it's more than doubled our previous record in Canada. So it's, as I say, uncharted waters. I'm, I'm trying to avoid the unprecedented word because it's kicked around so much, but that's that's where we are. And uh, the fire season isn't over. And some of these fires will burn through winter. Even though there's snow in the ground, fires can burn in deeper organic layers and smolder and smolder. Spring comes, snow melts, gets warm, dry and windy again, up pops the fire. Some people call them zombie fires because you, you can't kill them. Yeah, one tends to think of the obvious, you know, the people that actually die like in Hawaii, in Maui, that you think, oh, they all died. But there's all this residual, there's the asthma, there's the, the heart problems you get. The more we know about wildland fire smoke, the more we realize how hazardous it is to our health. Especially the guys working, dealing with it. I mean, they're... Yeah, you should wear a mask. Those N95 masks that became popular during COVID were actually developed for wildland fire smoke to keep the smaller particles of your lungs. They do a pretty good job, but the really fine particles in some smoke get through the mask, unfortunately. So... What's more, the second part of the article, you say extreme weather conditions around the globe are interconnected and insidiously self-accelerating. How is what's happening in the Arctic affecting air currents and the jet stream and these wild fluctuations of temperature and precipitation? Maybe I'll talk briefly about extreme fire weather and climate change and then try and answer that question. Okay, so... Fire is driven by the extremes. If a fire starts on an average summer day and it's an unwanted fire, it's easy for fire management to put up. It's on those hot, dry, windy days. We call them spread days because that's when fires actively spread. In Canada, 3% of our fires burn, 97% of our area burned. It's even more dramatic in Western United States where 1% of the fires burn, 99% of the area burned. And those 1% happen on just a relatively small number of days of hot, dry, windy conditions. Those are what's driving. And that's what we've been seeing in Canada this fire season. And we're, we've done research around the globe. Many areas of the globe are seeing more hot, dry, windy days. And with climate change, we expect this to continue. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Jeff, that fire and temperature are intimately connected. And there's three reasons for this. The first is the warmer it gets, the longer the fire season is. And that's very important for places like Canada where our summer season, our fire season is relatively short. In California, they talk about fire year now. They don't call, call it a fire season because fires burn all year long. Second, the warmer it gets, the more lightning we see. And lightning is responsible for most of our area burned in Canada. And unlike human caused fires that are preventable, we really can't do much about lightning until we deal 
as a society with human-caused climate change. And you know, the third reason is as the temperature increases, its ability to suck moisture out of the fuel, and here I'm talking about dead fuels in the forest floor, cured grass, dead needles and leaves, increases almost exponentially with temperature. So unless you see more rainfall to compensate from this for this drying from the warming, we're going to have drier fuels. And this is another critical piece to understand wildland fire. The drier the fuels, it's easier for a fire to start, easier for a fire to spread, and it means there's more fuel available to burn, which leads to higher intensity fires, bigger flames, which means they're challenging to impossible to extinguish. So that's what climate change is bringing to forest fires. Now, climate change is also affecting our weather patterns, and our weather patterns really dictate the fire situation. There's something called omega block, and it's like the Greek letter omega, and it's just a high pressure system. And it's the opposite of your grade three water cycle. Air is sinking, warming, and drying. So it dries out all the fuels if it stays there for a while. And the, the stagnant pattern is tied to the jet stream. So the jet stream gets its energy from the temperature difference between the Arctic areas and the equator in the Northern hemisphere. The Arctic is warming at three to four times the rate of the rest of the globe. So that temperature difference is getting smaller. So instead of a fast flowing river with our surface pressures, highs and lows going through every three to five days, and the low pressures bring rain every three to five days, you don't have a fire problem. But that river gets lazy and you get eddies and whirlpools, and then you get those omega blocks forming and stagnation, you get drought and fire where they are and where the low pressures are, you get rain and flooding. And we're seeing record-breaking flooding this year in the United States, and right now it's occurring in Greece. They're talking about two feet of rain in Greece from a medicaid, which is kind of like a, a Mediterranean hurricane. It's just crazy. And there's a recent paper out showing that the change from drought to flooding is increasing in how fast it's happening and how severe. And this is really important because when you have a drought, the, the soil gets like hard pan, and so when it does rain, it doesn't soak in, it just runs off. So this is what we're seeing is a warmer world with this lazy jet stream causing more extremes at both ends of the spectrum, heat, drought, fire, one end, and rain and flooding at the other end. Well, even if we haven't been in a hurricane, everybody has noticed distinct uh, extremes of weather wherever they live. Well, rainfall that comes on like a like a hose, and it just comes down like torrentially with no beginning tapering off. It's just absolutely torrential, and then lots of lightning and lots of thunder, more lightning than I've ever seen attached to a, a rainstorm, and that's getting to be the norm. If you think things are wacky now, it's only going to get worse as we continue to warm. It's going to get crazier and crazier, and you know what, what's concerning for lots of reasons is even if I had a magic wand and said no more greenhouse gases being produced, okay, we'll continue to warm for decades, albeit not the rate that we would if we, if we keep on pumping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, but there's lags in our climate system, so we're going to continue to warm for, for the foreseeable future. We have to get our act together and soon. 
Well, Jeff, in your book, you said that, quote, a heat wave is a predatory event that culls the most vulnerable people, but that's changing as heat waves become more intense and more common, they will become more democratic. Could you explain that? What I mean by that is that everyone is going to be suffering from the impacts of of extreme heat. And, you know, I think Mike did a really great job of um, when he was talking about wildfires and, and the sort of causes of wildfires and heat being one of them. I think one of the hardest things to understand about climate change is the these kind of cascading consequences that, you know, this accumulation of um, what might seem like small changes, subtle shifts in temperature, um, escalating and cascading into these bigger and bigger events. And and um, Mike's description of that was really excellent. And I think that that's similar to what we will see with heat waves, right? I mean, so I describe heat as predatory in the book, and it is. It goes after the most vulnerable people first. You know, I live here in Texas. I'm in Austin right now. I just, on the way here, um, passed a bunch of workers who are putting in a water pipe on this, in the street, and they're working out on black asphalt, you know, with construction gear on, and it's, I don't know what, 105 and really humid here today. I mean, it is brutal. And hopefully they're taking water breaks and doing the things they need to do. But for people who are working outdoors in this kind of weather, it is really, you know, dangerous. And in my book, I write about the death of a farm worker in Oregon during the Pacific Northwest heat wave from two years ago, who, you know, died working in a field in Oregon because there were no labor laws requiring heat and water breaks. And he more or less had to choose between keeping his job or risking his life. Um, and he thought maybe he would be okay. And he thought he was strong and he thought he was tough. And he wasn't, and he died. And he died of heat stroke. So these kinds of things are the sort of obvious and direct predatory aspects. But as these heat waves get um, more common, as they get uh, more extreme, everyone is going to be impacted by them. You know, in direct and indirect ways. Uh, we talked about food crops, you know, changes in food production, diseases that we talked about earlier too, with mosquitoes moving in different ways. You know, in the kind of heat that we're having in Texas and that we've had all summer, you run out of gas in your car on a deserted road and you're in big trouble really fast. I mean, things get complicated very fast. And you think, oh, we're fine because we have air conditioning. Well, you're not fine if that air conditioning goes out. And if you have a blackout and, you know, one of the infrastructure experts in my book talks about who was in uh, in Phoenix talks about what he called a, a hurricane, um, a heat Katrina, referring to the hurricane Katrina, which, you know, if on a on one of these extreme heat days in Phoenix, if you had a blackout and the grid is stressed during this time because everyone's cranking up their air conditioning, so there's likely to be blackouts in these kinds of weather, in these kinds of extremes, then all of a sudden, you know, your cozy house with, you know, 69 degrees or 70 degrees with air conditioning is all of a sudden a furnace or a convection oven. And there was a really interesting, not just interesting, I think that's an understatement, terrifying but very well-respected study that came out a few months ago showing that if there were a blackout during a heat wave in Phoenix, within 48 hours, 
half of the population, almost 400,000 people, would be in the emergency room and of hospitals. And 13,000 people would be dead within 48 hours. I mean, that is a horrific thing to consider, but true. So this notion that, you know, you're safe or I'm safe from heat events simply because I'm sitting in air conditioning, I'm luckily not working outside, you know, putting in a water pipe is a very uh, fragile illusion. I'm just going to field um, some questions that have come in from the audience here. I'm not sure if we can answer them all, but let's try. What does getting our act together um, mean? You said that, Mike, I think. When the changes in the atmosphere and ocean appear to be already set up by the current levels of carbon dioxide. So to deal with human-caused climate change, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. Okay, That's the first thing. And we have to go to renewables. And there's lots of options. And it's becoming more economically viable for these renewables as opposed to conventional fossil fuels. You know, the insurance industry is coming into play here, too, because it's no longer economically viable to protect through insurance, people's homes in various parts of the world now because of increasing nature of disasters. But we need individuals. We need local government, municipal governments, federal governments, global society, industry. We all have to start doing our part. And some of it is not going to be pleasant, you know, if we have to reduce our carbon footprint. And, you know, what, what does that mean? It means less air travel. Private planes should be essentially banned, except for essential use. Uh, you know, there's just so many ways that we are adding greenhouse gases. And then there's things that the unknown unknowns, methane is increasing much faster than carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide, our current levels, we haven't seen for three and a half million years. Okay, Methane is 20 to 80 times more effective as a greenhouse gas, and it's increasing dramatically. Is it because of permafrost thaw? There's hydrates, primarily methane, and terrestrial and seabed permafrost. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty as where this is coming from, but we really have to stop burning fossil fuels. All right? That's that's the short answer. There's other ways that contribute, but that's the big one. Uh, over to you, Jeff. Well, I, I agree with everything you said. I would just underscore, you know, we do need to stop burning fossil fuels as soon as possible. But I also think it's important to underscore that every molecule of CO2 that is kept out of the air is progress, right? And so um, it's, you know, I think that people can get into a kind of doom loop that think, oh, we're never going to get off of fossil fuels. And so we're just completely screwed. And, you know, let's just go hide in the basement and, you know, scrawl on the wall and crayons about, you know, the, our, our, you know, the fate of human civilization. You know, the fight is really important because every coal plant that is shut down, every, you know, barrel of oil that stays in the ground is a better world for the future. And so this, it's not, there's no kind of binary here, right? That's really important to grasp. And I, and I also would underscore that, yes, it's important to do our parts. Yes, it's important to live a low carbon lifestyle, all of that. But this is a political problem, and we need political action. We need to, we need to, to 
be pulling the big levers, which is eliminating carbon subsidies, uh, more transparency on lobbying costs, and working on dismembering the political muscle of the fossil fuel industry to help accelerate all of these other kinds of progress of renew towards faster generation or faster uptake of renewable energy and things like that. I, I just would underscore that this is really about, I think, about um, politics and political change, which is why voting, political activism and all that is so important. Thank you to Jeff Goodall talking about his new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, and Professor Mike Flanagan, who has a research chair in Emergency Management and Fire Science at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia, Canada. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course, all of you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.